Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 10th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Morning Edition, or rather Mississippi Edition, on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi health officials are preparing to vaccinate some of the state's youngest citizens against the coronavirus as the overall number of residents getting the shot slows. Also, is the state doing enough to meet the needs of the mentally ill? Mental health advocates are raising concerns. Plus, Mississippi's Public Service Commission gives the green light to construct a nearly four or rather 3,900-acre solar farm. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The vaccination rate in Mississippi continues to slow. It appears interest in getting the shots is starting to wane. According to data from the Mississippi Department of Health, six weeks ago, more than 127,000 doses of the coronavirus vaccine were administered in the state. Last week, that number dropped to just over 30,000. Health officials are hopeful the numbers will start ramping up. More young people in the U.S. may soon be able to get COVID-19 shots. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to authorize the Pfizer vaccine for use in children as young as 12 within weeks or even days. During Friday's COVID-19 update with the Mississippi State Medical Association, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs and state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers answered questions related to COVID-19. They discussed how the state is preparing to roll out the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds. We encourage pediatricians and family docs who see adolescents to go ahead and get enrolled as a provider and, and be ready to, um, to, to vaccinate. And certainly they have an opportunity to, to go into schools as well. And, and we have ways that we can assist with with some funding for that, for them to be able to, to go into the school settings and, and vaccinate. Um, but, you know, we'll also be rolling out some of the adolescent vaccines into, into our normal processes as well for how we vaccinate at the health department. So you, have you had any communication with the Department of Education and the private school systems about this already? 
Yeah, we have, and we sent some out yesterday, um, really sort of prepping the, the school folks about, um, you know, it's coming, uh, get ready, um, you know, be supportive. You know, not only is it going to keep outbreaks down, cases low, uh, but it'll also keep kids from having on quarantine. It'll keep kids on the football field, and they're not going to have to, you know, miss, you know, stuff. We know how important that is in Mississippi. I mean, that's for sure. So it really, it really just allows kids getting vaccinated allows normal. It will permit normal high school. You know, one of the selling points may be that that it does allow um, you know folks to gather indoors like we're doing right now if everybody's vaccinated without wearing a mask. And so, um, you know, it, it allows those kids to continue in-person class because you don't have to quarantine if you are exposed and you're fully vaccinated. You don't have to get tested, and you know, if you're asymptomatic. I guess we've got to get the parents and, and get the parents to start thinking about getting uh, their, their school kids um, vaccinated because that, that's a, a major part of where that's well, going to come from. If, if you don't want your kids to be wearing a mask in, in the fall, the best way to do it is to get them vaccinated now. The number of people hospitalized in the state with the coronavirus has gone down. Data from the health department show the seven-day average of new cases is about 181. Dr. Byers and Dr. Dobbs says the deaths they are seeing now from the virus are in unvaccinated people. Dr. Byers says the state is still having outbreaks in long-term care facilities. The outbreaks are really starting with unvaccinated employees who are becoming infected. And really that triggers an outbreak. If we have a, um, an infected employee who is on site and caring for patients in a long-term care setting while they are infectious, that constitutes an outbreak. And the reason that it does is because then we want to trigger infection control to prevent potential spread to the residents and other employees. But how it's still getting introduced into the facilities is unvaccinated employees, by and large, who are becoming infected outside of the facility and then are being detected while they're infectious within the facility. And that speaks to multiple harms, right? Yes. yes. Because if you're an employee in a long-term care setting... If you're print impaired, and you're MPB's radio reading services... the vaccine, you're not only putting lives at risk, but you're also making it where they can't have visitors. As the second year nears an end, many parents are eager to find camps for their children this summer. Revised COVID-19 guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control say children at summer camp should wear masks indoors and out and stay six feet away from anyone not in their group. Health leaders discuss what organizers and parents should be considering. Encourage your your, your camp counselors and, and your participants who are eligible to get vaccinated yeah. before they come. That's going to be one of the better ways to do it. It'd be great if the camp the camp would say all counselors have to be vaccinated. At least we have that group. And then, uh, as you said, anybody who's eligible. And, and, and look at the CDC stuff because they have really strong regu- uh, recommendations around cohorting, especially indoors. So, you know, like keeping whatever, like a, a bunk group in the same group so that, you know, you don't, you're not intermixing too much. And then outdoors, it seems like it's a lot more flexible. Um, you know, there's safer ways to do it, but um, we know, certainly have seen outbreaks at camps in other states. But, it, you know, if it's the same thing, if first off, if, if kids sort of semi-quarantine before they go, right, you know, which that's kind of hard to monitor. And, you know, some of them are talking about testing before you go. That's not foolproof. I mean, look, look at the White House, right, what happened last year. 
Um, and then, um, but the cohorting is huge. Cohorting, outdoor stuff. You know, the cleaning, I think that's good and that's important. I almost think the overemphasis on cleaning has detracted from the safety of airborne transmission, right? I see people who won't wear a mask who are like insane about scrubbing with Clorox wipes. And I'm like going, that's not how you get it. But the idea is, it's our breath. Yes, yeah, the breathing. It's exchanging air with others yeah, that spreads yeah. it. Vaccine hesitancy remains an issue in Mississippi, according to a poll conducted by the Pew Research Center in February. Rural Americans and white evangelicals are less likely to get the vaccine. Dr. Dobbs says they have to do more to encourage people to get the shot. I think we've done a good job, and our our health equity team and our and our states. African American leadership's done a really good well job done. communicating and, and 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 lowering those barriers. Not that they're still there, and there's still still some work to do, especially with young folks. Young folks are more reluctant, um, and there's still a lot of reference to Tuskegee and historic mistrust, which you know is is which is very legit. You know, I mean, I mean, it's understandable, um, but there it's it's really almost like this weird this weird white. Um, reluctance in certain subsets of the population um, uh, that it's 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 different. I never would have thought that um, that we would be having this sort of conversation about um, white disparity, right? Yeah. Um, and it, and it's really correlated with um, age and income and education. So if you're a younger, less educated, and um, less wealthy uh, Caucasian. That's the highest risk for not wanting to get vaccinated. Well, one of the, uh, and I haven't uh, had time to double check the numbers, but one of the questions that came to us was Madison County, about 40% vaccinated. DeSoto County, about 20% vaccinated. Two very white, well-to-do counties in Mississippi. Any ideas about the but, you know, North, North Madison is there's a lot of African American folks too. Is there? Um, there are, and um, and they and GA Carmichael up there has done a fantastic job. <clears> so <throat> I think that might be helping. Um, but also too, we have a lot of professionals and higher income folks. Okay. So I mean, do so you think it may be a demographic thing that you just laid out for us? That that, that can be part of. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of all of my professional colleagues who live in Madison and Ridgeland are vaccinated. You know, they just they don't, they get it. All of my professional colleagues couldn't wait to get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We need our docs to help educate your patients. That's really the next phase of this thing is this is going to be not so much the public health department leading the charge. It's going to be the doctor's office. It's going to be Miss um, Jones. No, it doesn't change your DNA. Right. mRNA is a very normal product. Your body makes it and destroys it all day long, every day. It's a normal thing. No, it doesn't kill folks, right? That's made up nonsense. It doesn't make people infertile. It doesn't have microchips. Coming up, is Mississippi doing enough to meet the needs of the mentally ill in the state? Mental health advocates are raising concerns. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
advocates for the mentally ill in Mississippi say the Department of Mental Health isn't providing quality community-based services statewide. The Justice Department sued the state in 2016, saying the state has done too little to provide mental health services outside mental hospitals. After a 2019 trial, U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves ruled Mississippi operates a system that unlawfully discriminates against persons with serious mental illness. The Department of Mental Health recently filed a response in U.S. District Court saying it has made some changes. It said Mississippi will fund and sustain 35 full-time intensive community support specialists, although workforce turnover could cause the number to fluctuate. The department also said Mississippi has and will sustain at least one mobile crisis team in each of the 13 mental health regions. While some services have been added, Joy Hogue with Families as Allies tells us it's not enough. They have added more services, and the way they have done that, from what I have seen, is by using state dollars to give grants to those community mental health centers to provide more services. I haven't seen the data about how many people have actually been served by those new services, although I do think that data exists somewhere. But what we don't know is... Have those services actually kept people out of the hospital? And do the people receiving those services say that they're benefiting them and helping them meet the goals they have, like to get a job or to be able to live in the community or to stay with their family and for things to work out well? So that makes me concerned about whether or not there has been the progress that there should have been to this point. So you're saying they are providing uh, some community-based services and have been working toward that end uh, since this suit came about, but you're just not sure how effective they are. Right, because we don't have the information. Because the goal of this lawsuit it isn't to just go provide some more mental health services. It's not even necessarily to treat mental health symptoms, although we think, you know, that that should happen as a result of this. The goal of the lawsuit is for people with mental illness who typically would get services in a hospital or in an institution to be able to transition to the community and have the support they need to live in the community. So to do the same things you and I would like to do, like living with our families, having a job, having things that are meaningful to us, you know, being able to negotiate the community so we can do the things that all adults typically do. So I don't see, I don't know if there is data or information that lets us know that that's really happening. I haven't seen it. So that's very different than saying we're going to provide some more services or we've given this mental health center this amount of money to hire this many people to do this. That That's a good start but it doesn't tell us if people are actually receiving those services and if they're helping them within the community. And there also hasn't been, from what I've seen, partnerships with those people who are receiving services from the very beginning or at any point to say, what services do you want? This is what this lawsuit is about. What would these services look like? How could they be designed in a way that would most help you meet the goals that you have? And in fact, there's been from what I've observed throughout this long process, and this has been going on about 10 years, 
attempt after attempt, and all most of them, from what I have seen, have been successful, to not allow any outside input from anybody about what would be helpful and what kind of a service system would be most helpful. So you would like to see more input from those who are affected by these services? Yes. Yes, because who better to know what they actually need than them? There's this saying in the disability community of never about us without us, that you never make any decision about a group of people without them because they're the ones who know themselves better than anyone. And the whole process of this lawsuit has been everything has been without those people at the table and without their families at the table. And even in a lot of cases, without the people who are providing the services at the table. How does that make you feel? It's very frustrating. And it's just hard for me to imagine how anything could be successful based on that model. It is true that more services have been provided and more services are proposed, but I but with know. whose input and right. and review? That's the concern. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to point out? I think it's important um, to look at that response is basically about what the Department of Mental Health will do. There's nothing about how that will be coordinated with the Division of Medicaid. And in Mississippi, a lot of mental health services are paid for through Medicaid because that's where a lot of people in Mississippi get their health care. And that's been an ongoing issue is the lack of coordination between those two entities and things falling through the cracks because of that. And then we don't have, most states have some sort of infrastructure that coordinates those two, and we don't. So even if there's more services provided and they magically become done in partnership with the people receiving them, and they're really helpful. I don't know how they're going to be sustained over time if it's just taking some state dollars and saying, here, we're going to go do this. But it's not coordinated with a payment source that will probably need to be used in the long term to sustain those services. So there's yet much work to be done in your estimation. Yes. yes. And much, much, and much of it's about coordinating. And if this makes sense, I think there's a real need to set things up so they can be done and they can be done over time and done well and sustained as opposed to just going and doing them. Well, Joy Hogue, Families as Allies, Executive Director, thank you so much for your time and speaking with us. Well, thank you for having me, and um, it's always good to talk to you, and thank you for your interest in mental health. Coming up, Mississippi's Public Service Commission gives the green light to construct a nearly 3,900-acre solar farm. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A county in East Mississippi will soon be home to the largest solar farm in the state. 
after receiving approval from the Mississippi Public Service Commission. The renewable energy plant will have 650,000 solar panels across 3,900 acres in Lowndes County. Northern District Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley tells our Michael Guidry this facility sends a signal Mississippi is open for business. Uh, this solar farm, which is privately funded, is not a uh, government-funded program, but this is a private investment of $200 million uh, that will generate enough electricity to power over 42,000 homes. And so uh, this will be our largest solar farm so far in the state. And one of the things to me that made this project even better uh, is that it will include the first large-scale battery storage facility. So actually, uh, they will be able to store 50 megawatts or 25% of the power that they generate, they will be able to store it uh, and have it on site to be pulled upon uh, at different times. And so that's been a key element as we looked at what happened in Texas and in other places. Battery storage is going to play a big role in that, and uh, that's an added benefit of this project. And so we're excited to see it come to Mississippi. It's going to create about 350 construction jobs uh, and several permanent jobs once the solar farm is up and going. You said this is the largest in Mississippi. How many others does the state have up and running? And what is kind of the forecast for bringing this kind of energy technology to the state? Well, we have several other solar farms in the state, uh, probably getting somewhere around 10 now, maybe closer to uh, a dozen. Uh, But, you know, we want to send the signal that Mississippi is open for business for responsible, renewable infrastructure and renewable power. Uh, It's key that we keep rates low. It's key that we Uh, look at resiliency and the ability of these renewable energy sources to be able to perform uh, in in bad weather. Uh, And so this project fits that bill because you've got 50 megawatts of storage there so that the solar power, once it's generated, can be held for several hours until it's needed. Um, That is an added plus to this project. And I hope that we see more of them in Mississippi uh, where we balance uh, the needs of the people of the state with economic development and growing our resources. What makes Mississippi an attractive place, or what are some of the factors to both attract and invest in this type of renewable energy? Well, I think first and foremost, we've got good policy in place in Mississippi. Uh, In Texas, where there was just an unmitigated disaster during the last ice storm that we saw come through, uh, Texas was a deregulated state where it was truly the wild, wild west when it came to pricing, when it came to customer service. In Mississippi, we have a regulated environment that ensures public protection first and foremost, uh, public pricing protection foremost. uh, And I think that that combined with smart energy policy by both the legislature and the Public Service Commission uh, has has led to the growth in this area. We want to be a door opener and not a gatekeeper when it comes to renewable energy uh, access and the growth of that of that industry in Mississippi, and money votes with its feet. We know that corporate America and the business community, uh, many of our Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies are looking to go to places where they can get renewable power. Uh, We want to do that in a way that it's responsible uh, to everyone, uh, that we don't put all of our eggs in just one basket, but that we do uh, take those smart steps to grow the economy in Mississippi and to take advantage of a state that's got a lot of sunshine. President Biden's infrastructure plan, at least his proposed plan, uh, calls for a lot of investment in green energy. Uh, solar energy, clearly a form of green energy. Kind of comparably, where, where does Mississippi fit in the grand scheme of things? Are we on the front foot when it comes to investing in this type of technology, or are we playing catch-up? 
No, I think that we're well ahead of a lot of other places. I think that in, in our state, what we've tried to do is have progressive but practical policies uh, that look at the ability of, of our state to harness our resources while keeping in mind the mistakes that may have been made in other states that went whole hog uh, maybe decade a decade ago. So we've tried to learn from others' bad experiences and craft a good policy here that incentivizes renewable energy growth, but at the same time makes paramount public protection, the protection of the electric grid. And I think we can do all of those in a way that's responsible and grow renewable energy in the state. Uh, and I think the proof's in the pudding. Uh, we've seen the 200-megawatt solar facility just this week. We'll soon be announcing uh, the state's first wind farm up in Tunica County, which will actually not serve customers in Mississippi, but will sell power out to the wholesale market. So that's a totally private venture that they have to uh, that they're footing the bill on. But we want to send a signal that we're open for business from a regulated standpoint, from a public protection standpoint. We're going to ensure at all times Mississippians have access to uh, to energy when they need it, and that we are looking at efforts of weatherization and making sure that we're guarding ourselves against what we see as a very much changing weather weather patterns that are changing the way in which utilities operate in many ways. Uh, Commissioner Brandon Presley, uh, Public Service Commissioner for the Northern District of Mississippi, uh, thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.